This podcast is a proud member of the Lamb Podcasting Network. Find the network at largeassmovieblogs.com. of the Mad, Bad and Damage Strange Showcase where I invite bloggers, filmmakers and fellow film junkies to help me work through the 1001 film introduction to Coulton Obscure Cinema which is the Mad, Bad and Damage Strange list. As always, I'm your host Elwood Jones from the Depths of DVD Hell and tonight we'll be looking at two of the more obscure films on the list as we journey to the city of permanent dark with Alex Pruais, 1998 sci-fi noir Dark City as well as meeting the parents with a highly unique parenting style in the critically acclaimed Dog Tooth. But joining him in the studio this evening is the owner of the Nightmare Gallery, as well as a regular contributor to Cinema Access, as well as the Lambcast. It, of course, gives me great pleasure to welcome to the studio Daniel Lackey. Hello. Hello. It's nice to finally get you on. I mean, it's taken 20 episodes, but we finally got you on the show, which is great. Yeah, great to be here. Any Anytime I can talk about weird movies <laughs> is, a, is a good day, as far as I'm concerned. Obviously, before we get into the two films that you selected from the list, I just want to obviously talk a bit about the site. Obviously, your main site is the Nightmare Gallery, which is right. right insane is a horror movie site. It is mostly, I think, it's about skewed about seventy five percent in 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 favor of horror, but it's in general, it's it's dedicated to, like I said, mainly horror, but it just dedicated to darker genre exercises in 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 general uh not just obviously horror but science fiction uh dark comedy film noir fantasy and so forth okay i'm guessing this is sort of your preferred area of cinema or do you like to keep your sort of taste pretty varied um i have i think a fairly diverse set of tastes um i mean away from uh like last year i i, I had this thing where i was going through various you know some of the various um, CGI animated films, like the Despicable Me movies and the Rio movies that I had somehow managed to miss out on. But yeah, I mean, uh, one thing I like to tell people is that, um, you know, I'm at first an upbeat guy, as I often come off in person, uh, you know, I I have my DVD collection, the most uplifting movie in my DVD collection, the the, uh, recurring line in it is my, our mom's dead. Uh, which is uh, Danny Boyle's Millions, which is actually a much more a much more heartwarming movie than you would guess from that return recurring line. Yeah, again, is Millions is just one of those films that I've yet to get around to watching. Um, I I do like Danny Boyle's films. Uh, there are certain films where I've not watched them because I feel that they're going to be too heavy. Smokes Millions is one, and Slumdog Millionaire being the the other one. But I loved obviously like Sunshine. Uh-huh. Uh, 28 Days Later, and I loved all his, especially his early films, when he was really sort of reviving Brit cinema with films like Shallow Grave and Trainspotting. You know, I haven't seen either of those. I kind of hopped on the, the Boyle bandwagon with 28 Days Later. Okay. And I haven't actually seen, and this is kind of, you know, kind of weird because I'm a huge fan of Christopher Eccleston and Ewan McGregor, both of whom are in Shallow Grave. Yeah. And again, it's 
that sort of early period, especially for you, McGregor. I don't know what it is. As soon as he started doing the Star Wars prequels, I've just never liked him since. <laughs> I don't know to... if I'm sort of like putting the blame. For, I'm like blaming him for like screwing up the franchise and like ruining my childhood. Yeah. Um, so now I like don't support anything he what he's in at all or what. But... It's it's weird because even I'm I'm not as down on the prequels as a lot of people are, but I just find it amazing. Like like for example, I liked Hayden Christensen as an actor. Yeah. Before, I mean, the stuff I saw him in before, what was the second one? Was that the uh, the Attack of, uh, of the Clones? Everything I've seen him in since then, he's sucked. And it's like it's weird. You ruined a perfectly good actor. <laughs> <laughs> there was just something about those those films and. The fact that they felt they had to have this knock-on effect and start altering the special editions. Because uh-huh. um, it's not enough to just alter the original trilogy once already to make it so more family-friendly. So, you know, non-Stormtrooper officers uh, of the Empire, they can't get shot in the chest anymore. And uh-huh. It's fine. But then we get to the end of Return of the Jedi, and then suddenly Hayden Christopherson's now a ghost um, in the Jedi sort of lineup that they have, and I was like, "Why? Why did we need to do that?" Didn't 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 you used to be Sebastian Shaw? You know, <laughs> it's it again. It just like, why did we do this? Why are we screwing around with something that we already screwed around with? There's this old, you know, there's this old saying. I, I don't know who came up with it, but but Lucas's buddy, one of Lucas's um, new Hollywood buddies, I, I think it was Scorsese, said that a film was never completed, only abandoned. And I think just uh, one of the things about technology is that, and technology has had its upsides in filmmaking. Don't get me wrong, but it's also I think engendered I think a certain thing in filmmakers where they can't. I guess they, you're looking at it from a, a, a film goers, looking at it from a filmmaker's point of view. It's different from a film. They they see it in a different way from a film than a film goer does, and uh, you know, it's just there's this urge to, that he that he has to you know come out and tinker with it and tinker with it and tinker with it. I think the best thing Lucas could do really was to uh, get to get rid of uh, hand over the rights to the franchise and and let new blood sort of come in and and. and Give us a, a new sort of outlook on uh, the Star Wars trilogy. Yeah, so and, I'm sort of more excited about seven than I was about one to three. Yeah, I mean, I now I'm 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 a Star Wars fan. I'm not a huge Star Wars fan. I, it doesn't have that kind of association in my head that it does with a lot of other people of my age, which is which is fun. You know, I had other things I glommed onto. Yeah, but. Uh, yeah, it's, I, I really wasn't, it was like, uh, they're going to make more Star Wars movies. Am I really excited about that? And then finally they come out with the, uh, you know, they come out with the first teaser and it's like, okay, this is, looks like it's going to be fun and exciting. And, you know, it's, it, you know, I like the ball droid, roller droid. And, Everyone um, loves the ball droid. Yeah, BB-8. And, um, it's just going to be, I, I, I don't know, it's, I'm really looking forward to it, uh, in a way I really haven't looked forward to a big blockbuster in a long time. Yeah. I think uh, for myself... Um, and this is something I'm, I'm currently trying to finish an article for. I'm in many ways bored of the Force. That when I was the, grew up with Star Star Wars, it was sort of the thing you you were into as a because I wasn't the most popular kid, and Star Wars was the thing that sort of united all those underdogs. This right. was like our secret handshake, so to speak. Uh-huh. And then obviously with as the internet sort of come on and, and conventions has obviously got bigger, and you have technology certainly for fans to go off and make their own versions of Star Wars it's become such a saturated and overmarketed product that I'm now bored of Star Wars it no longer holds the same sort of the same sort of feelings it did when I was a kid yeah 
and and as I said, it's sort of like you now go and you see like the guy who played I don't know Jawa number three, and he's there trying to hock you his Star Wars themed Christmas album. If you go to a convention, it's like you were just like some bit actor. You're not like a main guy in this. No one even knows if it is you. You could be just some guy claiming to be Jawa number three. Uh huh. So I don't. This is why I'm not as excited about uh, part seven. I mean, yes, it's it's nice to have new Star Wars, but it's not like this film that I'm like, oh, I must rush out and see this like day one. It's not like a new Tarantino movie. Right. Like go and see it day one. It's not like when Fury Road came out and it was like, I'm going to camp outside the cinema for four hours to make sure I get in for this thing. Cause I apparently can't work online ticket booking. <laughs> yeah. I, I nearly, um, when it came down to Fury Road, I nearly regretted it. Uh, you know, I was, I don't remember the original Mad Max movies. Uh, I, all I remember about them is my father was nuts about them. Mm. So I wanted to take my father out to see Fury Road, and I, I ended up taking him after opening weekend over here. And it was just like the, 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 the hype on Facebook among social networks was intense. It's like I thought when I ended up seeing it, it was only like three or four days after it opened. It's like I am the last person to see Fury Road. <laughs> Everybody has seen Fury Road by this point instead of, you know, other than me. And in, actually, in retrospect, I'm glad I waited because it was I really didn't expect it to be as good as it was. So oh. really kind of, you know, that built up this sort of anticipation and excitement and really, really intensely. As we've mentioned on previous episodes before, I mean, we had a 30-year wait uh-huh. to come out. Miller, at this point, has, he left. He, di- he had his trilogy. He was had his trilogy set in stone. It was all good. He didn't need to make another Mad Max movie. When he was happy going off and making, you know, the Talking Pig movie, the Happy Penguin movie, he was going off and doing other things. Uh-huh. Um, and it was nice, the fact that while he was obviously playing around with the idea of doing Fury Road and that the stars were never lining up over the... 30 years that he's been trying to get this movie made there was always something happened that would always stop him so the fact that it when it finally comes out it's as good as we all hoped it would be the same way with like you know guns of rose chinese democracy mm-hmm. um the smile album it's sort of like we're so glad that it was good when right. you can imagine a bad mad max movie would you wouldn't need to uh imagine what uh, the next movie would be like you'd be living it Right. Because the fans would just be so up in arms. They're just like going hunt, uh, hunt down Miller's like post-apocalyptic gangs. But Yeah, you'd be like, all of a sudden Australia would start looking like it actually it looked in the movies. And it's yeah. like, okay, this is what happens when you make the fans angry. Yeah. <laughs> I, I would, again, I've, I think the last three podcasts at least I've just been just fanboying out just about Mad Max. So it's, I think while I'm in two minds whether I'm going to see it again in the cinema... Because part of me is, again, worried that it's going to be, like, this pristine, like, image of what it was. Mm-hmm. If I go and see it again, that I'm going to, like, somehow see how it actually is. Um, it's going to, like, shatter this illusion I've got of how good uh, Fury Road is. So Yeah, uh, I, I don't know. With, 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 you know, one of the nice things, one of the nice things about having this, like, mass communication, this, this whole internet thing, is that you can have these discussions now and... It, you know, one of the things that I, I kept kind of seeing, and I had my own reaction to this, very similar with Fury Road, was a lot of people just just on Facebook saying, "Was is, is it just me, or this is this movie is really as great as I thought it was?" And everybody was like, "No, you're right." You know, <laughs> it's nice to be reassured. It is. Yeah. It is, and it's it's that that communal experience is getting smaller and smaller and smaller. With I, I don't know how. 
I assume things are going the same way in England that they are in, in America, where you've got this sort of um, this sort of shrinking of the theatrical market, where the the, theat- the, the films that get released to theaters uh, tend to be only the big blockbusters and the smaller, artier, more left-of-field films. They don't play cinemas, or if they do, they play one or two art cinemas yeah. in the theater, and you can't get to them. And I mean, most of my movie watching is done on VOD now. And to have kind of like that thing where, it, you know, there is kind of like almost a ritualistic experience in going to a, a movie theater and sitting down with people and watching a film together. And that I, 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 it's nice to see that that aspect, that communal aspect, the social aspect is, is still there as the um, as just the, the filmmaking world just changes from, you know, what it was 20, 30 years ago to what it is now. It's. Certainly, I think, like yourself, we tend to just have like the blockbusters come out. You may get a like a more sort of art house picture that play like one or two dates, mm-hmm. um, or you you have like that that little art cinema that will show the film, but they only before one day. I think really you got to to really sort of get the sort of more obscure films. You have to go to like a major city. You have to go to like Birmingham, or you have to go to London, um, right. and you have to go somewhere like the Prince. Prince say like the prince charles uh, which is obviously our only real sort of theater that's like a revival sort of house right we have over here but i think certainly the movie going experience is now more an at-home thing right um what i personally don't like going to the cinema that much i do most of my movie watching at home um many cinemas now are too nice to go by yourself yeah you feel, you feel kind of uh like everyone's like looking at you if you go by yourself to the cinema uh-huh. so whereas before cinemas used to be pretty great you'd have like the nice cinemas like the multiplexes and then you'd have like the smaller cinemas where you've got like basically a wooden bench with a little bit of cushion on it and you don't mind going to those places by yourself right because right. you know there's hardly anyone in there it's normally just drunks and homeless people if anyone's going to be in the cinema right no but nobody's nobody's going to see how sad you are going to the uh you know going to see this movie that only five other people in the world are interested in seeing yeah. and you're going by yourself no one's going to see you if anybody does it's only going to be as loser as much of a loser as you so <laughs> no and that's really kind of reflected in my hometown we had a when i was a kid i lived in the town i grew up in uh the 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 downtown we had this old movie theater that when i was a kid it was so old that it, it still had an orchestra pit it was one one auditorium and it had an orchestra pit and you know now now i think it's like a seven or eight they bought like the five or six stores on that i mean they bought the the storefront that my old comic book store used to use and they they expanded to like a they got like eight or nine theaters in there now yes and it's just you know it's kind of losing a little bit of that heritage i do i mean i do i do miss a little my Sort of old sort of grindhouse uh, cinemas. They're no longer there. They've either been right. converted, um, or they've just been knocked down, and most of the time with good reason. But in a way, it's the same as when you realise that all the video shops that you grew up with mm-hmm. um, are no longer there now. We no longer have the high street video shop, especially here in the UK, where it died with Blockbuster. We we're now just a, a society that thrives on on demand and sort of streaming services like or through the mail, things like Netflix, or over here we have Love Film as well, uh-huh. um, or Amazon Prime, and this is how we now, we for the majority of us, uh, take in our cinema viewing. Right. And I think in, in a way it's it's nicer because you obviously have that more control 
of a cinema. You can like if you're watching like a three-hour epic like Wolf of Wall Street, uh-huh. you can pause it. You can go to the bathroom. You're not missing everything. You can. Whereas if you're in the cinema, it's all like, oh, I've got to be here for like three hours. Right. And the other problem I have is like when you go and see something, and this has happened to me twice, and ironically both with the same director, and that's when I saw Drive and Only God Forgives. Uh-huh. And you're in there and you're like, you're totally immersed in this film. And you're like absolutely loving everything the director's doing. And you have the guy who's like seen two rows back, who's obviously been missold uh, because of how the trailers were made. They've gone in expecting a completely different thing. And then they like just storm out of there. But they, they can never leave quietly. They always like have to make a scene. Like you have to be like somehow acknowledge their disgust at how they've been conned into seeing something that makes them use their brain. Yeah. Of, like some brainless Hollywood trash. And, um, and obviously at home you don't get that. Yeah, and um, uh, uh, and another thing, like you know, if you're into horror movies, you go see a horror movie, and over here it's it's a neat thing for kids who are under the age of seventeen or whatever to you know get drunk and sneak into movies that they're too young to be allowed to see. And I think I had to actually have a uh, theater one time. I think it was when I saw uh, Cabin Fever, Eli Roth's Cabin Fever. I had to actually have uh, like about six or seven rowdy teenagers ejected from the theater. Yeah. <laughs> and they wouldn't go quietly either. <laughs> Did they like stare at you and it's like, no, no, they just, they, they didn't look at me. They didn't, they didn't look specifically at me, but they were like, you know, the, the, the guard was saying, you know, telling them to, you know, leading them out. And one of them just stands up and says, bye guys. I hope the rest of the movie doesn't suck. Enjoy yourselves. And I just want to go, I just want to go up and just like, you know, Drag that kid in the Fargo and stick him into a wood chipper, you know? <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean. It's I, I, I had a similar experience recently. Uh, we had a, a Halloween revival showing of the original Evil Dead. Okay. And obviously being a fan of the original, I was there and I was there with one of my other cinephile friends. And the again, it was the same experience. You had this these young people in the audience and they're sort of like laughing and sniggering about the cheap effects and like it's taking away from the experience. Like, right. yes, there are certain things that don't hold up perhaps as well it still has all its power i personally feel but you know Raimi made this on a budget it was to place him and his friends out in the woods trying to make a scary movie and yes it obviously has aged because it was made back in the 80s for christ's sake so uh-huh and cleaning up films doesn't really help these sort of situations uh either because it's sort of you can see all the, like the matte lines and what but again it's just by watching things at home you have that control you right. can view it in your little bubble of how you want to sort of view films. You don't have this sort of outside interruption. You can view it in sort of like its purest form. Right. But I don't know if I'm just getting, because I'm getting older, I'm just getting more sort of grouchy and like with how how I want things to, to be. Though. Somehow yeah. turn into some sort of cinema snob in my sort of later <laughs> years. Yeah. I mean, another thing I want to obviously discuss and, this is really in, in for two reasons, uh, really. Uh, the first being that I was listening to the Bet Easton Ellis podcast earlier today. I've sort of been binging on it since I recently uh, discovered it on iTunes. And he was obviously saying that nowadays we have, we view movies as being for kids and TV as being for adults. First of all, I just wanted to obviously ask what your feelings are on that statement. Do you think that TV is now more geared towards adults than it, they sort of form a disposable sort of self? It's um it it certainly is a weird thing that you have um because you've had a sort of and I'm assuming things are the same way in Britain where you've had this sort of almost fracturing of the audience uh particularly with cable and satellite television all these specialty stations 
that cater to entirely different audiences. Um, you do have, um, I don't think a show, um, even if it had been on HBO 20 years ago, I don't think it would have been possible 20 years to put a show like Game of Thrones on. Um, I mean, I remember a lot of the things that, like, you know, Hannibal gets away with. And, and Hannibal gets away with primarily because it's in a, in a time slot over here that nobody watches. Okay. Um, you know, the stuff that it, 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 you know, that it gets away with. And it seems to get away with without controversy compared to the way things, you know, were 20 years ago. You know, the sort of controversy, say, X-Files episodes generated when they are 20 years ago and it's tame compared to that um certainly anything geared towards a big audience has to gear gear itself towards the biggest audience possible and you do kind of see this in uh for example the big blockbusters where a few years ago guillermo del toro wanted to make uh, a film version of an hp lovecraft novel mountains of madness and he wanted to, I, I mean, and it's not an overly gory piece of source material, but he wanted to stay basically true kind of to the, the visceral horror of it and the shock of it. Yeah. And the, um, uh, you know, he wanted to deliver it with, with the R rating, which was the, you know, the 17, you know, nobody's under 17 or under without a parent. Mm. And they wanted the, the, um, the, the, the studio and the ratings agency organization here they wanted it to go out they wanted to look at they looked at the script and say no you have to deliver something that 13 year olds can can watch and certainly that that does kind of seem like movies are more and more and more gearing themselves towards a younger wider audience whereas television which is driven by particularly cable television which is driven by a complete different completely different set of financial concerns than a than a, a publicly funded station although our publicly funded station over here is horrible uh yeah. compared to what you've got or well, a commercial. Got bbc which no one yeah, watches <laughs> and um i mean not that i'm knocking our pbs in any in any way it, it serves it's it's got a great role in culture but uh, you, you know or a commercial a fund you know a commercially funded station you can, you know, these are entirely different markets with entirely different, um, you know, market concerns. To an extent, I don't know if I would say TV is for uh, adults and movies are for kids. But yeah, I, I don't know if I'd 100% agree with that assessment. I do see where, where Ellis is coming from. <laughs> You've pretty much just led with obviously one of the problems you highlighted there into the second part uh, of the question, really. And that's Hannibal. Now, when we first... Uh, did a podcast together. This was probably my second podcast with the Lambcast, and it was uh, What You've Been Watching TV Edition. Um, and in that one, I obviously I'd pitched about uh, Todd the Book of Pure Evil. For my money, still one of the most underrated horror comedy shows out there, and a kind of stoner version of Buffy. So if you like Buffy, I would certainly urge to check it out. And you were raving at this point. This Hannibal had been on for one season at this point, and you were obviously raving about the show and we're now on season three of the mm -hmm. show and I feel in many ways it's kind of got its core audience and for myself I believe that a lot of it has to do with the way it's been shot and I have to say ask really I mean would you have preferred Hannibal to have been shot in a more sort of straightforward style 
or are you actually a fan of these like Lynch-esque touches that they brought where into the series where we have these constant flourishes of slow motion and sort of close-ups on gore and viscera? It's it, it to me it's something that it's very very difficult to make work no matter what it is. I mean, when when you're trying to do that kind of stylization, um, it is very difficult to make it work, no matter what medium you're working in. And I think that the team that Brian Fuller has ascended for, the directorial team that he's assembled for um, for Hannibal, which uh, you know, the original uh, kind of house director for that was David Slade, um, who did 30 Days of Night and uh, Hard Candy. And then he's gotten other... Um, He's gotten other uh, theatrical directors on board as well. Uh, Vincenzo Natale, uh, who directed Cube and... Oh, Splice. God, I can't remember. Splice, yeah. Uh, he's done uh, stuff last uh, season. He'll do some stuff this season. Neil Marshall, uh, director of Dog Soldiers, uh, will be contributing to the third season. I think he really makes it work. There are times, I think the directors and so forth really make it work for Hannibal. There are times when I kind of feel, okay, I've had enough of the metaphor and dream symbolism in this wonderfully, beautifully shot bloodstain in spreading in slow motion. Yeah. But, I, I mean, the thing is, is that I, I, I go for story content over everything else. If something is beautiful, that's kind of like a little bit of a cherry on top. And definitely it, it, the visual aspects, television and film or visual media, it's, it, you, you can't make the mistake of me believing that cinema or television is simply about pointing a camera at somebody and letting that, some, having that somebody pretend to be somebody and pretend to do something and just go from there. I do think that, like I said, it's it's Hannibal has made murder beautiful <laughs> in, in a way, so. and it kind of fits. It really, I think, it really fits the character because the character of Hannibal, at least this particular version of Hannibal Lecter, is all about the aesthetics. This is about a guy who listens to classical music and drinks only the best red wine and knows what wine to po- you know to pair with every meal and so forth. It is a film all about refined aesthetics and I, I mean I had one friend describe the the show as bordering on food porn. <laughs> well, we do have these extensive sequences of banquet preparation of uh-huh how you take part of a body and combine it into into meals and write it off as being something else like rabbit or sweetmeats. Right. He has he's always got this his little index cards uh, recipes and he substitute meats by obviously using a human carcass in one, some way or another but his guests would never be sure of what they're exactly eating. They just seem to go along with uh, what Hannibal's selling it as. And and the audience, a lot of the time, is never quite sure what's going on either. And I think that's one of the levels that the show really excels on, is that sort of unease that's generated from the fact that, you know, people... This, it's kind of showing you exactly what goes into the preparation of, you know... Of, of food, particularly if you're a meat eater, what goes into the, you know, into the preparation of that, that it's not, we're not all that far removed from Hannibal. Yeah. I just, personally for myself, I find that once it gets caught up in its visuals, and it seems to do this so many times, 
is the show just gets so caught up in its visuals and its metaphors that the plot often seems secondary and I'm just frequently lost as to where I, I'm supposed to be. And this isn't the same sort of loss that you would have with like David Lynch's Twin Peaks, uh, where everything is about finding the the truth amongst all the the distraction or the illusion. Uh-huh. Um, here it just seems to be, in many ways, um, sort of art for sake of attention. Yeah, and I and don't I- know. I mean, I love uh, Matt Michelson as Hannibal. It's sort of like up in the air who I actually prefer because obviously we had Brian Cox who did a wonderful portrayal in Manhunter. We obviously got Anthony Hopkins, this legendary uh, uh-huh. performance Hannibal in Sansa Lambs and Red Dragon. So we keep seeing all these different versions of Hannibal and I suppose this, this is perfectly suitable is the, the character because we're never really sure what is, who is the true Hannibal, really. Right, and I think that's, I think that's one of the... And and this goes this I think does go back to, to Thomas Harris's novels the, the 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 extent to which you really can say do you really ever know anybody what kind of going is going on in somebody's head and it is it, I, what I think is the, the enduring thing about the character is that you've got one character but you've still got three very 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 strong very different I just had the very recently had the uh, the pleasure of being able to reacquaint myself with Cox's performance in Manhunter and looking at each of the three and, and kind of looking at it, but that you're still able to have all these kind of dimensions to the character to have three different performances, all putting emphasis on three different things, but all for it all to come out essentially is the same character. Um, and to sort of wrap up the Hannibal discussion with really, it, the character Will Graham, do you think we're ever going to see... A portrayal, a true portrayal of this character, Will Graham. I think with with Hannibal um, is saying the closest we've we've come to seeing the sort of Will Graham that we've seen from the books. Uh-huh. Um, I feel that Edward Norton's performance again was a little too mainstream, um, and then the performance we obviously saw in Manhunter again, it was it it was just very sort of of its of its time. Um, yeah. I think when I wrote about William Peterson's performance as Will and contrasting it to Hugh Dancy, Hugh Dancy, they're both unstable, but Hugh Dancy's Will Graham is the sort of guy who's going to slit your throat when you sleep while you sleep, whereas William Peterson's just going to beat the crap out of you in, in broad daylight. <laughs> you know, he's, he's, a, he's a much tougher, I think, kind of like straightforward, tough guy take on you know, and it, and and that goes, and that is very much in line with you know, m- you know Michael Mann's other work in the '80s, Miami Vice, and so forth. Yeah, I mean, really, from one sort of psychopath to uh, another, we're going to just uh, break away from the TV discussion now and look at the first film of uh, that we selected this evening, which is the 2009 Greek film uh, *Dog Tooth*, directed by Yorgos uh, Lafamias. I believe that's uh, pronounced. I do apologize. Uh, if I've completely butchered that name, I um, will allow you to take the. Uh, I'll. I'll. Uh, you. I'll throw you under the bus for the pronunciation of these names. <laughs> <laughs> the film itself is a highly experimental film, should we say? Um, it was nominated for the best foreign language film at the 83rd Academy Awards. It's received almost acclaimed critical praise on its release and. For those sort of outside the mainstream sort of critics, the sort of artist crowd, it's been met with sort of more mixed um, approach. So I'm very interested to obviously see what your feelings on this one, Lackey. For those not familiar with the film, 
it's about a husband and wife who raising their three children and isolating them from the outside world they're sort of running their own sort of psychological experiment in a way where they are bombarding them with their sort of alternate vocabulary and telling them that words mean different things than they would obviously in the outside world and the, the husband he goes to work and he works at his factory and he lives this sort of normal life and inside uh, the house they live by their own sort of very unique rules to so the least as we're probably covering the uh, discussion but opening thoughts in this one lucky what's your sort of uh, thoughts on Dogtooth? This is um, a movie I, I heard about it when it first was released over here in the States um, to the art house crowd and, and really all I knew about it was that about basically the concept and it's like okay that's an interesting concept and I think there were a couple of other plot details they let slip like uh, you know there's this one the, the father works at a I, it looks like a some sort of factory or warehouse and there's a security a female security guard that works there that he's been paying to have sex with the, the male of the three children and uh, I, I, one of the um, plot details that linked in the review that I read of Dogtooth mentioned the fact that one of the daughters convinces the security guard to, to lend her, quote-unquote, lend her a couple of uh, VHS videos. And this girl who has had no experience of the outside world all of a sudden becomes incredibly obsessed with Jaws and Rocky Four, And just will go around constantly talking and only in movie quotes. And um, the thing that strikes me about Dogtooth is that you're right. It's very experimental. It is, I don't think it's a film that has a whole, it has a whole lot of appeal outside. I think, I mean, there's a sort of, and I don't, I don't really want to sound disparaging here, but there's a certain sort of movie that I think does very well amongst the art house yeah. crowd. It's a, a sort of film, and that's the sort of film Dogtooth is. Dogtooth is not really a film about his story. It doesn't have a plot. It more so is just about an exploration of a of a concept. There's a very little there's very little meaningful even conflict in the film. That it's just basically kind of about how exploring how these people go about their lives. And it, it goes beyond um I think the, simply the language or the protection from the culture. The one, the, the 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 thing that I will remember is probably the most memorable part is is the um, the brother who lives on the other side of the fence. The um, yes, the, they... the parents have told the kids that they have a brother who left the compound and they use him as an object lesson. This fictional brother, an object lesson in what will happen if you leave the, the compound. And, the, you know, you'll see them, you'll see the kids every so often. And I call them kids, but they're clearly adults. Like, yeah. the, they're never referred to by their names. But the act, I thought the actress who played the older daughter was clearly in her 30s. I looked it up. She was 34 when she made this movie. Um, which gives the film, I'm not entirely sure whether the, I can't think that the director consciously said, yes, this 34-year-old actress looks like a 17-year-old. But, you know, to, to get back on the subject, you know, they, they remark about how, you know, the, the parents remark about how 
the, the, the kids will go to the back of the fence and they'll throw chunks of cake over for their brother or they'll talk to him on the other side. It's, you know, that's... And later on, they use him kind of as an, uh, a further object lesson to describe something that they've never... Somehow a cat gets onto the compound, a stray cat that they've never... The kids don't know what a cat is, and eventually the the the, the, the son just basically gets this gigantic pair, pair of shears or something and ends up killing it. The parents have to spin this horrendously convoluted... Not convoluted, but horrendously long story about how these little cats, these are the most vicious things. They eat children in their sleep. You know, and the father, when he comes home from work, he's flashing fake blood all over himself. He's cutting up his clothes. He's just, one of those cats killed your brother. It's, I mean, again, it's the, this, this key scene. The, the cat, how the cat's dispatched, I will discuss in a minute because it was one of those real sort of shocking moments. But after the cat, and they're using it, as you said, they're using it as this lesson and to sort of reinforce this idea of that they built this within this world for them. And you see, the mother and the and the children on all fours and barking like dogs. This is what the father's saying is like the only defense against these these dangerous cats. I mean, yes. This is supposed to be like the most smallest and most unthreatening cat that's ever been committed to film. But instead we have the brother sneak up and he stabs it with a pair of shears. Now, I don't know whether this is a really clever cut or if the cat was actually killed, I've not been able to find anything anywhere sort of confirmed, but from all purposes, it looks like you're seeing a cat killed on film. Yeah. And this is, is sort of a real throwback to like the likes of Cannibal Holocaust, which obviously had animal cruelty mm-hmm. and, and live animal slaughter on film. And the fact that I've not been able to find anything on all the usual sources to confirm whether the cat was killed or not. Um, I mean, the fact it's a Greek production, so again, it's under different censorship laws than if it was like made in Hollywood or the UK, uh, which obviously have animal cruelty is sort of like the big no-no when it comes to censorship at the minute. So again, have, it begs a lot of questions. So I have to think that it wasn't really killed, partially just because so. I'm an I'm partially just because I'm an optimist and just hope that we're kind of beyond that. Um, but also because it doesn't really seem to be all that difficult for a film with a moderate amount of attention to, to kind of under to, to be noticed for doing something like that. I mean, it's not like this was a a movie that slipped under and that you know that that I mean this was you know it was it was Greece's entry you know that year for the the academy awards for best foreign language film and i kind of have to think that if it was they actually killed a cat for this scene there would there would be generally enough interest in the film that somebody would have un, you know dug it up and made a scandal out of it yeah but you never know it's yeah it's i mean the film itself is shot on a shoestring budget i believe that they only used one sort of camera for the whole film um, and in many ways, it reminds me a lot of like the dogma movement, right? Uh, which obviously produced films like Lazo and Trier's The Idiots, which in many ways is sort of the closest comparison to the, another film like this. This, the stylistically, this really reminded me of Von Trier and Michael Haneke. Um, the kids constantly wearing white. I kept flashing to Funny Games. Yeah, <laughs> it's again the, these children. They are for intensive purposes, they're adults, but the way they've been raised, they've been 
held back mentally. So they are essentially just grown children. And you see them and they play childish games in the garden. And the parents, they seem to constantly be finding new ways to screw them up further, such as the fact that when planes fly over the house, they hide toy planes in the garden. And they say, oh, that's what they are. Actually, as, as far as kind of mind fucks go, I, I still have to say the one that still gets me is in two months, your mother will give birth to two children and a dog. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because it's established at the beginning of the of the movie that the father has a, a dog that he's putting through obedience school. And you never really, you know, they never it's not the dog isn't like a huge point. No. He goes to the obedience school and tries to convince the 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 guy who runs it. Look, I I want to take my dog now, and he's like, no, it won't work. You, you know, and 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 it's it's sort of like a, almost a a macro a, a micro examination of the film's themes about kind of like conditioning and brainwashing. No, you this dog has only gone through level one, and you want a dog that's going to go like all five levels, and they don't. I don't think they ever mention the dog again until this point when at which point you think, oh, that's how they were going to explain the dog. (laughs) Oh, your mother gave birth to a dog. But I love the fact that the mother says to him that that the two these two children that she's going to give birth to, they can be foregone as long as they if they improve their behavior. It's like a punishment. (laughs) So the fact is, she's like. I don't know. She's like mentally aborting children as a as a disciplinary technique. It 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 is just like a special kind of mind fuck, you know. I mean, it it's just and and the the hilarious. It's like you don't really know what the sickest thing of the two is. Whether the fact that the kids are so not that the mother would actually be so emotionally manipulative as to be able to do this, or that the kids are just so naive. It's just like, that makes perfect sense. Mom's going to give birth in two months. She knows exactly what she's going to give birth to. Mm. And, you know, babies come from mom. Dogs must come from mom. <laughs> exactly. I mean, it, you, can, you can kind of see the logic. Um, and I love the fact that this isolation has caused the older daughter in particular. She's becoming slowly psychotic. There's a scene where she just runs up and randomly carves her brother's arm with a kitchen knife. Yeah. And there's again, there's a later scene where she, because the parents have this idea that they can leave the compound when they lose a dog tooth. Mm-hmm. So she's like, takes a weight to her face and she's smashing her face to, in order to remove this tooth. And she's just smiling there with this bloody grimace. Uh-huh. It's just like dripping down her face. And it's not like she's, has these this like hidden sort of psychosis and in many ways she's sort of the most switched on one and I've, again I couldn't tell whether this was like her own psychosis or whether it's a result of the security guard who the father's been paying to sort of come in and prostitute herself to the eldest son um, uh-huh. and who in turn is because of how the son is choosing to make love should we say is also um, receiving kind of lingus from the daughter as well who at the same time, because of their their, their mental sort of capacity, don't realise what they're doing. Right. Um, and they're sort of like they're trading these acts for like headbands, and they do, they see no sort of significance of, of the act. Right. Um, and she's basically there getting her jollies off by manipulating these two vulnerable girls in in a way. Uh huh. 
And um, that's the same girl. The older one is the same one that bashes her. She takes a hammer and, like, bashes, like, breaks her brother's, like, leg. And then he screams. Everybody rushes to the upstairs bedroom. And she's like, I didn't do it. A cat jumped into the window and bashed him his shin with a hammer. And it jumped out. And I, I mean, it's like, it's, it's, it's an image that, you know, and immediately in my mind, I imagine this. You know, this little tabby cat come in with a ball-peen hammer, whack him on the shin, go, meow, bitch, and then jump away. I would say, is that where your Skype pitch came from? <laughs> no. <laughs> yes. That's the cat that did it. The cat that did it. The cat. Uh, I can't help a cat, a cat with a hammer. I can't <laughs> imagine. I think that's the most surreal image that's come into my head lately. <laughs> I, have no, I have no way of following that up. It, yeah. Um, one of the sort of aspects of the film is that I felt in a way like, and similar to uh, Chuck Palahniuk's Haunted, that here we're essentially watching the director play a game of grotesque one-upmanship. Like, how can I just top what the next fucked up thing I can come up with in this film? And we get to about, I'd say around the three-quarter mark, and it's sort of like, well, we've done this, we've killed a cat, and, you know, we've gone, we've had, like, uh, graphic sex. So, what else can we throw into this film to sort of shake things up? Things that people have become too so accustomed. To. It's like I know graphic incest. Yes. Um, and again, the parents are like, "Oh, we're going to the sisters are going to offer themselves to the brother, and he's going to get to choose." And you're wondering what the hell was going on here. And and again, the lead up to this whole thing where the father discovers that the security guard that he'd been prostituting out to her, you know, to them, uh, had given their daughter the two videotapes. And how he punishes the girl for that is, is it's, it's almost hilarious. He says, honey, go bring me some duct tape. So he goes, she brings him duct tape. He duct tapes one of the videos to his hand and then beats his daughter with that hand and then goes to... The, um, the security guard's house has this very reasonable talk with her, then unplugs her VCR and hits her once or twice with it. And then when he's leaving, says, I hope your children, you know, fall. I hope your children's friends are bad influences on you, on them. And I, and I hope they're, they turn out terrible because of these bad influences, I really do. That you really, I think, do get, a, you know, the closest you get to anything resembling motivation on the parts of the parents. Why are they doing this? You know, they're, they're conditioning their kids to be so incredibly completely dependent on say the idea of safety at home and in the compound that they can't function without it. I mean, even, you know, it's like, let's hear grandfather sing. And they put on a Frank Sinatra record. It's, <sighs> and, and the father is translating Fly Me to the Moon as being this song about how important it is to stay home and love your family. Mm. And it's just... <sighs> I mean, I, I couldn't... This was the, one of the things that annoy me about the film. There seems to be no end game. I mean, there's never any explanation what's caused the parents to raise their three children in this way. What, what were they hoping to obviously come of this? Are they going to create some, like, weird... Sort of like like those cults you see out in the desert where they have like mass inbreeding and they're like living this own sort of sheltered existence. Um, was this their end game that they're just going to keep them as children for like evermore? Yeah, um, and that that is I don't know if I'd call it a weakness of the film. 
it is something where I think for me the film worked a lot better as a series of individual moments than as an overall experience for me because like I said a lot of the time I tend to focus on having I like store I like to be told a story I like to see a plot this really didn't have a plot this the characters often kind of felt like they came into being the minute the fade in comes and you don't really ever get this sense of who they are in their history you get only these various little flashes every so often not yeah. very often and it really it's it's only in their it's only really that you get a, a good sense of their insecurity when in that scene uh at the the security guard's apartment where you're getting you're saying oh aha this is what they're after but you're right it's just like they're there is really no goal in mind other than to keep the kids there. Yeah, it's, and again, the film itself it has the it's so frustrating because it has these flashes of brilliance. Uh, the scene where you have the the daughter and she's reenacting the the punching scene from Rocky Four, and she's like using cranberry juice to represent the blood. Uh huh. And again, you just sit in and she's there like mimicking the punches and like spitting it out the juice in a way to sort of like mimic this blood flying and those sorts of scenes I've just really enjoyed and then we just had these scenes where it's just random sort of like almost as if the director's like going yep yeah, I just like completely know what I'm doing here and you just uh-huh. sit there and and like it's go like, along with this okay I regardless of how much it makes sense or if it does yeah it, it it is like I said it is just kind of like one thing to another until there's a little bit of a climax you can kind of see things building to a point it's not 100 percent a a a case of just one thing happening after another until things stop happening type of plot but it is it is i think something like i said that works you see these flashes of brilliance it is hilariously funny at many different times at least to me but kind of as a whole it doesn't kind of really kind of gel together yeah i it's the sort of film that you watch sort of as part of your cinematic education. Uh-huh. Like the same way you watch a film like The Idiots or Freaks. Um, right. It's not, it's not the sort of film that, like, if you've got friends coming around and it's all like, hey, who wants to watch Dogtooth? <laughs> or if you're watching it, you're, only, you're like showing it in the same way that you show Freddy Got Fingered or Funny Games. It's sort of like, I'm going to put this on and we're just going to completely fuck with everyone. Like, I'm just going to sit here and just watch people's reactions to this on phones. My first, my first real girlfriend once told me about Eraserhead. Eraserhead is the sort of movie you watch it once, you've done your duty to the culture, and you can move on with your life. And that's also the kind of movie Dogtooth is. It, again, it's. I'm glad in a way that I saw it. I, I'm not in a rush to rewatch it. By any stretch of imagination, I feel that I got everything that I needed to from that initial viewing. Right, right. Um, I think there's anything. I don't think there's anything left for me to discover in it. No, it's it. It pretty much does what it needs to do on its initial viewing. I think you may have more of an idea if you watch it a second time. You may have more of an idea what's going on, which may cause it's like lose some of that mystique. The same as way as you watch Memento the second time. Yeah, it's never as good as the first time. Uh huh. But while the film obviously hints that it's got this hidden depth in it, that all these little hidden meanings, like if you're watching like Lynch's Mulholland Drive, that there's all these little clues and that, that you have to sort of discover. The same as like Richard Kelly's Southland Tales, that it gives this sort of presence that 
there's all this depth to it, but there really isn't. It's just a lot of surface sort of gloss and fluff uh-huh. um, sort of surrounding this what this idea that they've just, that he's here trying to build a film around. It's sort of like, as you said at the start, this is just a concept. It's not really a film in a sort of traditional sort of way where we have the free sort of act structure. This is just more concept put onto film and just seeing how it would play out. Uh-huh. One hundred percent agreed with you there. Again, so where do we go from here? What would be your further viewing? What would you, if you liked Dog Tooth, or you wanted to go, for, wanted to watch something similar? So you wanted like a follow-up film. What would you use as your uh, sort of follow-up viewing? Oh dear, I don't know. Probably, uh, probably something, probably something like, uh, probably something by Von Trier. I would say probably. I I'd say maybe Antichrist. Mm. No, not Antichrist. What's the one? What's the one that I really liked? What's the one with? Oh God, I don't remember the name of it. Melancholia. That's the one I really liked. Okay, Melancholia. I've, I've not yet seen that one. Um, that's a really good one, and I I don't really know what any of these have in common. It's Dogtooth is it, it, it's in that it Von Trier is this sort of director who can kind of take these sort of disparate elements and and take things that would ordinarily just be this isn't so much a movie as just a concept and actually make a movie out of it. Yeah. I understand what you're saying. I mean, Von Trier for myself is a director I've had to age into. Um, yeah. I mean, I watched, uh, this would be the late 90s, so when I'm sort of beginning my film, sort of self-education, where I'm watching sort of like the late night um, extreme uh, cinema, things like Kissed, uh, like sitcom, and uh, Doom Generation, and looking at films like A Razor Head and Freaks that obviously Von Trier's The Idiots would, was like the film that came up. But now as an older cinema viewer, I don't know whether because obviously I've got more things to reference it to. I'm able to watch things like Antichrist. Um, and I really appreciate them. I think a lot more than if I watched it as a younger viewer where I'd just probably be taking in more in with like the splatter and the spectacle. Right. Um, whereas now as an older viewer, especially the opening scene of Antichrist, um, I was in absolute tears. I had to stop the film and just calm myself down. Yeah. Continue with the rest of it. And again, this is obviously as a parent, I'm viewing this film. So in the back of my mind, I have that connection as a parent. It's like, what if this happened to my child? Right. And I have that sort of connection. And I, the opening of Antichrist is just so beautiful. We have this in one hand, we have this very erotic sex scene. And in the other, we've got this horrific uh, death of a child. Uh-huh. And the fact that he's thrown these two emotions at us at the same time is really sort of the the genius of uh, von, von Trier. Right. And, um, and I, I think remember- it's, again, what they would like to happen with this film, but unfortunately it doesn't sort of happen in the same way. Right. Um, for myself, though, if, other than the films we've obviously discussed this evening, the only other film that I would throw into the mix would be Das Experiment. Uh, um, I don't think the, I'm familiar with that one. It's the German film. It's loosely based on the Stanford experiment. Uh, oh, okay. You yeah. had members of the public, and they were divided into two groups, and one group would play the prison guards, and the other gu- group would play uh, prisoners. It was recently remade uh, recently with Forrest Whitaker and uh, Adrian Brody as the experiment. Um, again, I felt it stayed very true to the original German film, although I would did find the effects kind of like watered down from having obviously seen the original German film and from what 
a lot of people say the German film is best to watch first. It's in its purest form, and it features the boyfriend from Run, Lola, Run as okay. the uh, main lead, the German uh, Johnny Depp, as I like to refer to him as, because <laughs> I, I can never remember his name, so it's like, oh, there's the German Johnny Depp. So, But um, again, does experiment is against this idea of taking a concept and watching it play out in film, and it's it's more sort of straightforward it has a narrative and it's certainly certainly nonetheless shocking but uh certainly one i would recommend recommend uh hunted down even if you haven't seen this film just hunt down does experiment it's worth <laughs> worth you watch you got anything else to obviously bring up on this one before we obviously move on i think i'm done with Dogtooth. okay uh we're going to take a quick break uh, when we return we'll be looking at the second film this evening uh alex Perez's 1998 uh, sci-fi noir Dark City Hello everybody on behalf of Nick, Joe and Vern we would like to invite you back for a brand new season of the As You Watch podcast On our upcoming season we will be talking about franchises trilogies and series of movies that you will recognize and some that you may not We will also continue to post fun and insightful interviews with many people in the world of entertainment as well as feature a lot of great guests from other sites and podcasts. So be sure to check us out on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, Podomatic, and on Facebook. And don't forget to check out our older episodes on our site, asyouwatch.wordpress.com. And we're back. Uh, still joining me in the studio this evening is Lackey. Hello. <laughs> um, and before we obviously go into our second film this evening, Dark City, I'd just like to uh, remind everyone that we do appreciate any comments that you wish to leave us here on Podomatic, uh, Stitcher, or on iTunes. Uh, alternatively, if you want to uh, connect with the show on fa- on Twitter, uh, you can at Elwood underscore Jones. We are also available on Facebook as well. Just search Mad, Bad, and Downright Strange, and uh, you should find the page there. The second film of this evening, as I said before, is the 1998 noir sci-fi movie. The film Dark City, uh, directed by Alec Proyas, who at this point has created Come Just Off the Crow, uh, which again is another cool film we would no doubt be discussing in a future episode. But for the film itself, it follows John, here played by Rufus Sewell, who wakes up naked in a hotel bathtub, his memories erased, and a mutilated prostitute on the bed. Um, but soon John finds himself framed for a string of brutal and bizarre murders while on the run not only from the police but as well as a group of strange trench coat clad men known only as the strangers as he tries to piece together his memories. The film itself, it's again, it's a sci-fi film but it's also a noir film. It's shot in this very Kafka-esque world which has within its shades of Terry Gillingham's Brazil as well as Fritz Lang's Metropolis. And in some ways you can also throw in the likes of Streets of Fire for its visual style. But before we get too far into this, I just want to uh, ask you for your opening thoughts on this one, Lucky. This is a film, I, I saw it when it came out in the theater uh, in 98, and I always meant to revisit it. I remember really, really liking it at the time. And I always meant to revisit it, and this is the first. Uh, this is the first chance I've really had to revisit it uh, in almost 20 years. And it, my, it's nice to see that my memories hold up very well. Um, yeah. It's also nice to see, kind of like, you know, in the 20 years, you know, since I've seen this, in the almost 20 years since I've seen this, uh, you know, I've grown older. Um, 
I've actually started thinking more about film and actually writing about film. So it's kind of nice to, to, to actually look at things that I appreciated in the original film and now get a better sense of the context of why I like them. And I'm very glad that you brought up the connection to uh, Brazil, which is one of my favorite films. I'm a, I'm a Cary Gilliam fan. Uh, to the extent that I can, I, I've even found kind things to say about pretty much everything he's done, save for the Brothers Grimm. But <laughs> there were there were particular scenes at the end, the final chase scenes where the strangers are chasing Rufus Sewell around the the unnamed city, and the thing about Rufus Sewell's character, the character of John Murdoch, is that he has this ability which is called tuning, which he can apparently psychically change his environment. And the strangers have this ability, and the reason the strangers are so interested in John Murdoch is because humans aren't supposed to have this ability. And there's this several scenes which I felt were straight out of Brazil. Um where there's one where he's, I think he's outside this big kind of gothic noir kind of apartment building, and he's making these columns go up and down for him to, like, ride on and get out of reach, and it's like, that was so Terry Gilliam. Yeah. That, and I, I, I thought that was a great, and I didn't realize, I don't, didn't realize when I first saw it that, oh, that's a Terry Gilliam touch, and I thought it really worked very well. Um... I, I think for the most part, like I said, it's held up. It's it's dystopias for whatever reason tend to be one of my favorite genres. Um, any sort of really bleak future, um, I'll generally give it a chance. I might not always like it, but I'll give anything like that a chance. And this one really does deal with some some philosophical viewpoints um, that at the time. Uh, at the time, it really, this was 1998. It was not, it, the, the idea of combining philosophical ideas with action in an effects-driven science fiction movie, that wouldn't catch on for another couple of years. And, and over here, Dark City was kind of a flop. Yeah. It didn't, it, did, it, it didn't really find a huge audience. And then a couple years later, uh, some friends of mine started talking about this movie that was in theaters and it was called the matrix. And the more they explained it, the more it sounded like basically dark city. I mean, it's, I mean, obviously the matrix that came out in 1999, but one led to believe a number of the sets from dark city were recycled for the matrix. Ooh, that I didn't um, know. But the matrix myself, it feels very similar to dark city. Um, I mean, certainly in terms of styling and Again, if we're talking about films that Dark City inspired, uh, you only have to look at Inception, with, which again had brought her this idea that you can manipulate the city, you can change it to, to one person's sort of uh, perspective. Um, and this is what obviously one of the, the key things in the film, is that the strangers, they, they're constantly changing the city, they're moving people's roles around. Um, the idea of changing roles, that again would be something that we'd see in The Matrix. Um, but here they're, they're changing the city around and there's a scene where, where John's being chased by a building and it, in many ways it did remind me of uh, the pirate accountants from Monty Python's Oh uh, Yeah, the, the Crimson Permanent Insurance. <laughs> exactly, and I was like, that's what, where my mind instantly went as soon as I see exactly. these buildings coming, <laughs> being moved, moved along like, like, again like ships. And even, 
I just love the how this this film is obviously put together. It's sort of like has all these ideas like Streets of Fire. Um, in terms of it refuses to stay with any particular period. It's got very like 1950s styling, but you see another thing and they'd be like, oh, that's much a different period. And it sort of sits within its own cycle. And obviously when we get the big reveal at the end, it's like, now it makes sense. Because there's always, there's this big mystery about the beach that he's like constantly trying to get to. Um, I believe it's Shell Beach. Shell Beach. Um, and of course, when if we ask Asif on the like, they've all got memories of Shell Beach, but they have no idea how to get to Shell Beach. And it's one of these key pieces. And I, again, this is something that Press really does well in this film. It's that he puts all these little pieces, all these little clues. And like John, you have to go around the city and you have to collect them and you have to put it all together. Now, the one of the reasons I obviously mentioned this is I don't know which version did you watch like? Did you watch the director's cut or the theatrical cut? I don't know which version it was. I bought okay. the version that I bought for five bucks streaming on Amazon. Okay. I didn't realize that it was a different scene cuts until Emily, uh, uh, intervener of the Deadly Doors of Horror Nonsense, like brought this up when we covered this on her podcast, uh, The Feminine Critique, that she does with mm-hmm. uh, Christine Makepeace. And basically, if you watch the theatrical cut, it gives away the ending in the opening monologue. But if you watch the director's cut, they don't give you that. You just oh. throw in it. You just wake up as John does in the bathtub, whether okay. you're naked or not depends on how you watch movies. But so it's okay. So it's basically it's almost the same differences between the two cuts of Blade Runner, another film that this has quite a bit in yeah. common with. Uh, with the opening narration, yeah, I had my version had Keith Kiefer Sutherland's opening narration. Exactly, and and again, it's if you can, you want to really just if you have the if you want to make sure just sort of like fast forward the dvd to john waking up that's the sort of definitive way to watch this film if you watch the theatrical cut basically all the mystery of regarding the strangers who they are and what they want is given away in the opening of the uh, film oh. and you're like oh um and again i saw the director's cut when i first saw this film and i was like oh this is a really great mystery like the big reveal when you obviously get to Shell Beach and the doors open and it's sort of like, and we have one of the characters, he turns around and it's suddenly this big reveal. Now, again, if you watch the theatrical cut, there is no reveal because you already know it's told you at the beginning. Uh-huh. Um, and I'd, again, it's, I love the fact that you sort of got this familiarity with this world, but nothing's quite what it seems. Like for the start, it's always dark. We have theatres which show movies like The Evil and Nightmare and that gives you like the hint that, that something's not where it's The Book of Dreams. Yeah, you have like, you have uh, the psychiatrist here, uh, Dr. Schneebros, uh here play, played by Keith Sutherland, who at this point he's still pretty wild and uh, sort of wild and indie. He's not like his, as we've come to see him now, like the 24 Kiefer Sutherland. Yeah, he's, he's, he's not Jack Bauer. No, he's he's still grungy and edgy. He's kind of like uh, he was in Phone Booth. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's obviously doing these maze experiments. And he's like the guy who seems to be, in many ways, seems to know what's going on. But at the same time, also seems to be completely crazy. Right. Um, and I, I love this idea. Like, do we trust him? Or do we not trust him? I mean, again, the, you look at things like uh, Inspector Bernstead here, played by William Hurt. And the first time we meet him, he's playing the accordion. And it's such a surreal moment. 
that why why do we open to him playing the accordion? And he carries that accordion with him throughout the film, and it just shows up in uh, he takes it to work with him. And it, it, it's like an accordion is not unless you're like a polka musician. This is not something you're generally <laughs> going to take to your job with you. No, it's uh, again, it's I, there's there's so many films like there's so many moments within this film that I just it, absolutely adored. It's it's an absolutely beautiful film, and you can see why Roger Ebert is one of two films that he did a commentary for. The first right. obviously being Citizen Kane, his favorite movie of all time, and the second being this film, and uh-huh. he. He truly championed this movie. I think the last time that I saw him uh, champion a movie this hard was with Gates of Heaven, the uh, documentary about uh, pet funeral services. Right. That I think if you watch um, the documentary about his life, which I'd, if, you're, if you are a film fan, I would urge to watch because Ebert, I think we, sh- we can't really mix words really. He was, in terms of film criticism, he was like the grand poobah of our industry. And and he was and and I had the great fortune to kind of I, I know this is going to sound almost fanboyish, but I mean I l- come from the Chicago area, so there's I, I had a lot of certain sort of almost civic pride in coming from the the, the metropolitan area that he came from, a- and for certainly it it, it is was rather the, the thing that really kind of struck me that I didn't really realize until after he passed away was that forget the fact that he was a film critic, you take the whole body of his written work and he was really one of the best writers of our age. Yeah. I mean, the fact is that he didn't just write film criticism. I mean, that was true what he was best known for. Uh, but at the same time, he was he did a book on walks. Um, he, did, he just really sort of... He just really loved the written word, and uh-huh. he again he just really loved film. And when you see again, when I was starting off in as a as a critic, and obviously you're all sort of like full of piss and vinegar, and you you kind of want to stab back at the establishment, so to speak. And you're like, oh, I'm I'm different. I'm not one of these like one of these mainstream critics. I'm not like Harry Knowles or one of these critics who like answer to the studios. I'm doing my own thing. And it was only after I saw his, him and it was uh, his review he was doing with Cisco on Welcome to Dollhouse that I got it. Uh-huh. That here is someone who can like like promote art house movies, sort of like the epics, uh, like Citizen Kane, and at the same time can show appreciation for Todd Sullivan's weird little high school movie. And he can view he doesn't view these films as being different from each other. These like he can view them as being on the same level as each other and obviously right. show the same sort of appreciation. And it was at that point, I obviously suddenly like had this appreciation for Ebert's work and I can see why he wouldn't want to champion this movie. And it's in many ways, I think he was trying to champion it because he knew it deserved to be seen. It, and yeah. when you watch the film, you, you realize what an underrated director Proyas is. I mean, I, the- the thing that really strikes me about this film, one of the many things that strikes me about this film, is how much I, I sometimes feel if I were Alex Proyas, I would feel horrendously ripped off because so much of the grammar of the modern action film comes from these two films, The Crow and Dark City, but not because people are cribbing The Crow and Dark City, but because they're cribbing the Wachowskis and Nolan. Hmm. I mean, that's the thing, whereas Nolan's actually gone on record to cite this as an influence. 
when he was doing the Inception, he was obviously mm-hmm. talking about the villain. The Wachowskis haven't ever mentioned Dark City at all. And you could argue that they've essentially, for, I would say, a good quarter of the film, ripped off Dark City. Uh-huh. But for my money, the Wachowskis are just a couple of hacks who got lucky. Yeah. Um, I mean, The Matrix is like their standout movie. Everything else that they sort of done has been sort of very hit and miss or has been flawed. I mean, even when we look at their first film, Bound, which is really just sold on the fact that it's a lesbian thriller. Yeah. This was like their selling point for that film. They proved that they had nowhere to go with The Matrix with the two films that followed. I didn't even bother with them. Um, Speed Racer, again, was what life must look like to a kid with ADD on the ups and downs of a sugar bender. Um, and Cloud Atlas is essentially, it's, it, again, it's got wonderful moments, but again, it's three hours of your life that you're going to be dedicated to this film. Mm-hmm. So I, I find them, it just annoys me when we have someone with the talent that Forrest has. Yeah. Sure his later films aren't as good as his earlier films when we look at things like iRobot and Knowing. Uh, I haven't seen Knowing, but I, I remember really being disappointed in iRobot. <sighs> iRobot was always going to be a tricky film. Yeah. I mean, you're trying to create a film out of the laws of robotics. Um, it, it was always going to be like World War Z. It's sort of like it, it works as a book for a reason. Right. Um, it, it, it's like a theory, really, isn't it? Yeah. When you, when you read World War Z, it's, it's this oral history. It's this, and it's, again, it's something that annoyed me why they didn't just do it as like, as, like a documentary piece, like do it as a uh, false documentary uh-huh. and have it like talking heads. And I think this was mainly because I wanted to see Henry Rollins as the security expert. Uh, <laughs> um, and just like build it up and you could have like fake news footage and like splice it all together and you could tell this this uh, audio history of the zombie war. Uh-huh. Uh, but instead we have Brad Pitt, you know, running around and fighting zombies and just doing the sort of modern zombie movie thing. Right. Um, so in that respect, it failed. But but yeah, certainly back to Dark City. I mean, this, in many ways, I feel that we don't really seem to have the films which these sorts of scope or experimentation anymore. They're sort of few and far between. Um, yeah, I mean, you, you, we've had a few. I mean, uh, Ex Machina, I think, really had a lot of that kind of experimental and cerebral spirit to it. I've yet to see it. I've heard a lot of positive uh, feedback about it. Probably my favorite film of the non-documentary film of the year so far. Hmm. Again, I just want to see films that are obviously trying to push things. Like, we look at the, the, I believe it's the Automat. uh, Uh He goes in and they got the little windows where you can get green jello. It's not lime jello, it's green jello. Green jello, yes. It's marked as... Uh, which also has probably one of the biggest dick moves of the whole film in that he's trying to get his wallet and it's in one of the compartments. But in order to get the compartment, he needs his money that's in the wallet. It's kind of like that situation where it's like break glass for hammer and you're thinking, well, I need the hammer to break the glass. Right. Um, and it, it's again, it, it leads to one of those, probably one of the, the few weak moments of the film where he has like a little telepathic ray open the box for him. But Oh, I thought that worked fine. Okay, so it's just me then. Yeah. <laughs> um, and the strangers themselves, I just want to obviously discuss them briefly because we sort of touched on them briefly, but there's some real royalty 
amongst the, the actors playing. We have Bruce Spence, the gyro Bruce. captain from Mad Max 2. We also have Richard O'Brien, who here in the UK is like an absolute legend, mainly because he did a game show called The Crystal Maze, but I think to the rest of the world he's known as uh, Riff Raff. Riff Raff, yeah. Um, he, he did The Crystal Maze? I didn't know that. Yeah. I have, heard, I, have, I have never seen The Crystal Maze. I have heard of it. Okay. And for those outside of the UK who never saw The Crystal Maze, basically he was hired to be the presenter, um, but he used to go off on these whims when you'd have the teams play the games. He'd take the camera and go off and do a whim. He'd like do a little song or make up some false mythology for like the set surroundings. Uh, one of my favorite scenes is that um, he's on his little piano and he's like, oh, doing his ode to Mumsy. He's like, <laughs> he's sort of like, yes, if I was own John, it'd be like ode to Mumsy, not song to Mumsy. And he just does this little song and obviously the camera cuts back and forth to the room and cuts back to him and he's like paying no attention to it. He's just like <laughs> going off on a whim. He's like, just fires out these like improv moments and everyone loved him for it. So now we have this situation where we have one half of the world or because England apparently seems to view itself as being its own little world where we view him as it's Crystal O'Brien. It's Richard O'Brien from, you know, from the Crystal Maze. And then we've got the rest of the world who didn't get the Crystal Maze. And it's like, it's the guy who obviously gave us um, Rocky Horror Picture Show. And then maybe a smaller minority was like, it's the guy who voices the dad on Phineas and Ferb. Oh, that's right. I'd forgotten about that. The second, yeah. I would say the second greatest kids cartoon at the moment. The first being Gravity Falls. Yeah, I haven't seen Gravity Falls. You would like I've it. Heard a, I've heard a lot about it. Yeah. Gravity Falls is 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 just another sort of, sort of wonderful if you'd excuse another tangent i know we keep going off on them <laughs> on this film so i do apologize to the That's diehard cool. dark city fans but uh, gravity falls is basically about this uh, brother and sister are sent to live with their creepy uncle in the woods who owns a mystery shack and it's sort of like uh filled with like all these humbug items but the fact is the woods are filled with all this real mythology stuff um so that you've got the bro and sister constantly like battling whatever weirdness comes out of the woods and You've got gnomes that vomit rainbows and the sister's got a pet pig. And it, it sounds absolutely insane, but you wouldn't believe that Disney are the ones who came up with this show. Because it's just so smart and funny. Disney will surprise you every so often. Mm. Um, with the strangers themselves, I mean, what are your thoughts on, on the strangers? That, like, just the fact that they have these odd names like Mr. Hand or Mr. Book that you think would have some sort of significance, but they don't. And they're just sort of like, in many ways, kind of like a toned-down version of uh, Hellraiser's Cenobites, like Chuck and Teeth and that. Yeah, that was... I, I definitely did see the Hellraiser, the, the Clive Barker influence on the design, the the bald head, the long, almost Victorian-style coats. Again, something that gets passed along to the Matrix, the trench coats and the fedoras and, and all that. Um, I thought that they were a brilliant idea and that they were very well executed. And you are very right in the fact that you've got some absolute brilliant acting talent on that. And um, in addition to Bruce Spence and Richard O'Brien, I have to call out one of my all-time favorite actors, Ian Richardson, um, who played Mr. Book. Um, he's probably the not the, the most visible villain the most visible villain is is richard o'brien's mr hand but he's in many ways mr book is sort of the mastermind of the whole thing and all of these actors do very very good jobs of seeming 
almost, almost, but not quite human. And to the point where the shaven-headed person with the dark clothing, the dark, severe, conservative clothing, being someone who is a non, does not belong, being an outsider, it has become, it's almost become a cliche. The thing that I kept flashing to is, um, I'm a big fan of a, a science fiction show that ran over here, and I think it ran over in Britain as well for a few years, a J.J. Abrams show called Fringe. Yes. And the, 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 there, was these, there were these recurring characters throughout the, the five seasons of the show called Observers, and they were basically, visually speaking, the same basic concept as The Strangers. Dark, severe, business-like, conservative clothing, dark suits, long coats, shaved heads, shaved eyebrows, very outsider-looking, but some, something that you maybe would almost sort of kind of noticed if you saw one in real life and then but your your brain doesn't acknowledge as being wrong so much that it actually puts a little blip in your head and it's just i think the the, the performances there i i think are what really the, the the concepts are great but it's the performances that really make them work they really do seem particularly richard o'brien they seem otherworldly yeah. the 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 mannerisms the the one actually that uh, the other one I want to bring up is the one that's played by Mr. Sleep who was played by looks like a 10-year-old girl and has maybe one line in the entire film um it it's it's just it's so like I said it's become almost that 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 kind of image is almost a cliche now in science fiction, but I think it's really a, a, just like the perfect storm of conception and performance yeah. on those. It's, it's. I thought it was a brilliant idea. I mean, the reason the film sort of flopped uh, over here in the UK was sort of, sort of presented with very sort of mysterious sort of posters, should we say. It was, it was a lot of like, oh, from the director of The Crow. Uh, was like the main sort of selling point, and it didn't receive any sort of advertisement. And it took the film, I remember it coming out more on VHS at the time than ever have it seeing a sort of cinema release. I think I saw one thing on one of the movie sort of shows that sort of brought it up. Why do you think this film sort of has become this under the radar sort of classic? I one of the I it's hard to say, I think. For, for certain, but it's it's an intelligent film. It's an it's an it's an intelligent film with a number of good performances, a very very striking, memorable design, and I think it is the sort of thing that the certain sort of thing that people kind of flock to, not in numbers to see it in theaters, but back when we had video stores, they would happen upon it at video stores or they would hear about it for a, from a friend. A friend would show it to them and it would sort of gather that way. It, it, like I said, intelligent, you know, and it, like I said, just had the bad fortune to apparently at some point the zeitgeist was just not ready for heavy philosophy and action film. Um, yeah. That's about all I can say as, as far as to, to why, I mean, it, it's a, you know, it's, it's one of those things where um, I think Donnie Darko has become uh, probably, I think, for, for many of the same reasons. You know, it's it's a reasonably intelligent film. 
um, that happens to have it, it just have a, a, you know a number of striking plot elements, a number of striking visual elements, and so forth. Yeah, it's funny you should mention Donnie Darko because, like Reservoir Dogs, it flopped in the states and it came over to the UK. And for some reason or another, we really embraced Darko over here. We were we were just like this was like our our thing. We just really jumped on board with it. And the same with Reservoir Dogs over in the states. It was like marketed as a little art house picture, but over here in the UK, it was like, this is a big film. This is a big deal. Um, and they obviously went back to the States and, and regained a sort of cult film. But Donnie Darko, it's it's funny the fact that it's, it's now sort of like finally finding its audience. Um, and more people, and if you are going to watch Donnie Darko, I would strongly urge you watch the original cut. Don't watch the director's cut. Um, the director's cut, for myself, it sort of gives away all the mystery. There's no mystery to be found with it because it gives you all the answers. And I mean, were you a fan of Donnie Darko? I'm right in thinking. Not, like not actually, not. I understand why people like it, but it it didn't really grab me. I mean, I loved it. I mean, I, it's one of those cinema going experiences. I mean, I still remember everything about that that experience the same way I remember everything about when I saw Southland Tales and A Clockwork Orange. It's one of those experiences I, I still remember so vividly watching it and when I was like got it on DVD when it finally uh, got released that you that you uh, did all the little fanboy things like such as you pause it on the diary uh, entry Grandma Death's diary and it there gives you all the little hints about time travel and all the secrets of the film and I loved how it gave you all these little, little mysteries that you had to find and again it's the reason I love Dark City is that it gives you all these little pieces and you sort of put it all together and it's sort of like, it, it's at the point where you put it all together that the film then go sort of confirms, it's like, yes, you got this right. This is what it was all about all along. It, it, it's a puzzle movie. Yeah. In that, and maybe that's one of the reasons that it's become a cult classic as well. It's, it's a movie like Donnie Darko that it, it encourages the, the, the audience to play along, to help, try to solve the puzzle yeah. as it goes along. But at the same time, it's not like a M. Night Shanahan movie. No. It's sort of like, sort of like pulls the rug out of your feet and you've got the feeling that the director's going, look how clever I am. Yeah. Look what I did. Here, you can see Proce is like, I've got this mystery and I'm going to sort of spoon feed it to you and you're going to put it all together and we're going to solve this thing at the same time. Right. Um, it's not that we're just going to like, I'm just going to like drop this on you and then we're going to be just end. And yeah. it's going to be, it's going to be that, you know, I've got this idea, but I'm going to break it down. So, so you can take it in your head and like explode or something like scanners. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I, that's why I really loved it. I loved the little, the, it's like you're collecting little trinkets. It's um, kind of like, um, I, this is a really bad comparison. It's like John Woo's paycheck. Where you have that little little envelope of trinkets, and it's sort of like you soon like realize where they all sort of come into uh, into place, and what it all sort of means, what all the spirals mean, uh-huh. um, why um, Schreiber's constantly in the like in a sauna or a swimming pool because the strangers can't go near water. So this is his defense: mm-hmm. is to like constantly hide himself in a swimming pool when he's not working for them. Yeah, but, and it's 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 a very and it's a very tough trick for anybody to pull off because you've got to be able to keep 
things going at a pace where the audience is figuring things out at roughly the same rate or just ahead of the protagonist. If you're figuring stuff out before the protagonist, too far before the protagonist, you're going to get bored mm-hmm. waiting for him, the stupid, the stupid actor, to you know catch up with you. If you're too, again, Shyamalan is the, the great example of this. If you go in too much of a certain director direction, you're going to come off as being too self-consciously clever for your own good. You know, Dark City has that perfect ratio. You know, it, it keeps the audience and, the, and, and Murdoch going at the same rate. Yeah. There's very little. I think the only really problem with that and the way it deals with it seems is towards the end when Murdoch states a little bit too obviously in his final discussion with Mr. Hand, the secret to what makes humans human isn't, you know, and he points at his head, you guys were looking in the wrong place. That's maybe a little bit too on the nose, a little bit too pointed, but for the most part, you know, he it, it, it's a it, he he praise explains what he needs to explain, and trust the audience to be able to work out the rest without yeah. with actually having something there instead of having nothing there, and just kind of pretending that it's deeper than it really is. Mm. I think certainly Percy here is he's created one of his. His, his key masterworks of his career. And I think he sort of, with this film and The Crow, he delivered, set a bar so high for himself that he's never been able to sort of reach it again. Yeah. Um, and and yeah. I think this is why he obviously has gone away. He hasn't tried to do any more sort of these sort of noir sort of films. Like with The Crow, you obviously had The Crow, which came out before this. And Dark City felt that, in a way, that he wasn't quite done with the world he created in The Crow, that he wanted to do something else in this world, but not the same at the same time. Um, and from there, he's obviously tried to branch off and do other things. He's tried to do sci-fi and the sort of thriller, which was knowing, which my money was, was a very good film, was a good film. It just sort of let it all go in the end where he clearly didn't know how to end his movie. Yeah. Um, and I think it's sort of a shame at the moment. He's sort of like in the wilderness at the moment. Uh, there's nothing really sort of coming up. He's sort of still... Uh, sort of tossing around the idea of doing Paradise Lost, but I would like to see Price come back and do another sort of Dark City. Give us a trilogy. Yeah. That would be uh, nice, but one point I've just realized that we haven't touched on at all, and that's the uh, gen- the appearance of Jennifer Connelly in this movie, who uh, plays John's girlfriend, ex-partner of sorts. The mystery around their relationship, how did you actually feel about that? Because it's it's played up in the part that they don't even seem to know what happen with their relationship yeah it makes it, sense later it, in in many ways the interesting thing and a lot of the times if i criticize when i uh, a lot of the times when i say something like what i'm about to say it's a criticism it was a criticism when i said it about dog tooth but i'm going to say it again and at this point it's a compliment you feel like these characters came into being the minute that they appear on screen that is by design they don't have histories they don't their their histories are being written and overwritten at whim at will but as you know experimental so you never the whole thing between anna and um not anna emma emma and john anna is what they call her later is that you never know for sure what kind of relationship they had before rufus sewell wakes up in that bathtub 
you know, because they have these memories of being married to each other. They have these memories of this horrible betrayal. She went and she slept with another man and it, it hurt him. And, you know, it, 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 it's something that, you know, it, it, the big theme of the film is how, how much of us, where exactly is the human, where exactly in human experience does the soul reside? What makes a person a person? What gives a person their identity? If we take out, if we take Elwood and we take out all of his memories, his childhood memories, his all of this stuff, and we put this other stuff in his head, he's an investment banker and he's married to somebody and he's got three kids, and you give him an entirely different history, or not in a different history, but a different set of memories, does he become a different person? You know, to what extent are these things fixed? And there's this sort of implication um, throughout the film and their relationship that there is a stronger bond between them than you might initially assume. It never, even though it kind of makes plain, these people never seem to have had any real connection to each other before. Um, and I think Sewell and Connolly played that fairly well. I've never been a gigantic, gigantic fan of Jennifer Connolly as an actress, but I think they both play it fairly well here. And finally, just uh, before we obviously wrap up this episode in Dark City, uh, further viewing, I mean, if you do like Dark City, I think we've essentially covered all the uh, films that you were going to uh, sort of next. Yeah, sort of in Inception, Brazil, The Matrix, and Donnie Darko. Yeah, I mean, is there anything else that you would add to that list, or do you think that we have pretty much covered it already? These trying to think. Um, the, the a movie that was released a couple years ago, um, also kind of deals with similar ideas and ideals of identity, ideas of identity in a dystopian, um, dystopian environment. Um, I wasn't as happy with the film as I hoped I would be. I'm a big fan of the director, but a film that was released a couple of years ago called The Double, directed by Richard Ioedi, um of the IT crowd, starring Jesse Eisenberg. And based on, actually this one actually based on a Kafka story. Okay. Um, and you can very much see the progressive influence of these other sort of philosophical dystopias on it. It's 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 worth seeing, even if it doesn't entirely work. You see, I was, I've got it on the list, so I will watch it at some point. The problem is, I didn't enjoy his previous film, Submarine, which everyone just raved about. But I just, I just could not find that connection. Um, so, I, I mean, the double is one that I've yet to obviously watch, uh, so I couldn't really sort of vouch uh, vouch for that one. But yeah, I think certainly if you do like this one, then the Crow is obviously. If you're obviously wanting to stay with the same director, then The Crow is, is going to be the most obvious next sort of viewing. Um, and then you want to really just look at the films which came before it. Films like Brazil and Metropolis. Um, both films which still hold up. My, for my money, Brazil is actually the missing Monty Python movie. It is. And every every few years I rewatch it. And it's, it's just, it, it's, it's a perfect film almost a perfect film and i have been a fan of it for 30 years and i'm still figuring new things about it i really from watching it the thing that really really gets me these days is how much we lost by michael Paitlin not 
having much of a career as a dramatic actor. The thing with Michael Palin is, he's, the reason he works so well in that film is because Michael Palin is such a generally nice guy. So to have him as the head interrogator is just an absolutely genius move. Uh-huh. Um, but again, I just there's so many scenes I love from that movie, such as when we have the bomb go off in the restaurant and they're moving the screens across to cover the dying and the bleeding uh-huh. and this because they don't want in, the rest of the uh, patrons in the restaurant they don't want their meal disturbed. So we'll, right. we'll cover it up with these screens and it was like that's such a Monty Python style touch. The fact that no one's acknowledging this terrorist act that's happening behind them. Uh huh. Um, and the first one, I just love the fact that. It, the whole film itself, you are following a daydreamer, and the film itself feels as if you are within a dream. Right. Um, which, going off the ending, you could or you couldn't be. I'll leave it up to it. If you haven't seen Brazil, then you've got to watch it yourself to figure out what that means. Great film. Love that film. One of my favorites. Um, before we obviously wrap up this uh, episode, I mean, uh, what you got coming up uh, next in your sort of product list? Oh, God, I don't know. I'm kind of drifting unfettered at this point. I don't have any movies lined up. Uh, I've found... um, I've found... uh, It's finally come across the pond over here. Um, There's a show called Inside Number Nine, which I've been looking forward to. It eventually coming over here for a while. It's from a couple of the people who were involved in League of Gentlemen. Okay. Uh, Reese Shearsmith and Steve Pemberton. And I finally have the first series of that, and I think that's going to be the next thing I cover. Um, but other than that, I really don't have a whole lot planned. I'm still free-birding it at the moment, then. Yeah. Um, later on tonight, uh, Bubba Wheat at Flight Tights and Movie Nights and... Uh, what's his other site? Channel Superhero. He's yep. doing a Saturday night, a Saturday morning thing, and I'm doing, and I got to write that up tonight. Uh, the Dungeons and Dragons cartoon from the early '80s. <laughs> it's really great with the fact that you're covering that because originally, because you can read my piece on there, JC and the Wheeled Warriors, uh-huh. uh, which is essentially Mad Max for kids. Wow! Um, because Bubba Wheat stole SWAT cats. He, he is his site, so I guess he can do what he wants, but. Um, Swat Cats will obviously be one of my favorite cartoons of all time, back when Hanna-Barbera, for whatever reason, decided to suddenly go dark. <laughs> um, Swat Cats is incredible. Um, and also the just the sheer amount of puns that they can play off the word cat. Uh-huh. Uh, but yeah, JC and the Weird Warriors, uh, it was actually the about quarter of the episodes were written by the creator of Babylon 5. Oh, J. Michael Straczynski, yeah. yeah. Um, and I didn't. The, the actual show was created to go with Mattel's toy line, uh, Wheeled Warriors, which I didn't realize at the time. I was watching it as a kid, just thinking, you know, this is a great show. I didn't realize there was a toy line to go with, it, and I'm sure my parents are probably glad of that as well. <laughs> um, but it, again, it was like GI Joe and Transformers, and it was sort of like, well, those cartoons wheeled out to support a toy line, and it never had a final episode. But again, this is back in, you know, the early days before we all had internet and you know we could all get on message boards and bitch that we didn't have a last episode so uh-huh um but no it's uh as i said it's you have this the lightning league who uh battle against these mutant plants who can turn themselves into vehicles and as i said it's it's very cool uh but yeah. you can read my piece over at channel superior which is uh channel and obviously your piece is uh 
going to be up over the weekend, I'm guessing. Yeah, I I, I'm going to finally get my butt down and write it tonight. So, uh, but if you want to obviously uh, find more of your work or uh, follow, follow you, uh, where's the best place to find you? Uh, the best place to find me is in my apartment. I'm kind of a homebody, so I'm usually there. Uh, if you don't actually want to meet me in person, which I completely understand because I'm sure I come off as a weirdo, I have website. Uh, com. As I like to tell people, not nightmaregallery.com. That's a museum in New Jersey. And I also contribute to cinemaaxis.com. And you can find... Uh, sometimes it's about horror and sometimes it's about other things over there. I've, done, I've had a chance to inter, a chance to review some, some stuff that's way outside my normal uh, realm of experience at Cinema Axis. So those are those are my two hangouts. And I'm on uh, I'm on Twitter, uh, nightmaregallery.com. That's gallery without the e. And um, Nightmare Gallery has a Facebook page. Yeah. Um, as always, you, we will be posting the full links to all these sites, that, um, as well as other links of interest in the section below. So uh, anything that you need, you can also find there as well. Um, like you're going to be back with us in the next episode, which is actually our Under the Radar special, uh, where we're going to we're going to be joined by several other critics, and we're going to be leech taking our turn to list our six Under the Radar mo- favorite movies. Uh, which is going to be exciting stuff for episode 20. Um, but until then, um, it gives me great pleasure to thank you again, Lucky, for coming on the show this evening and discussing the films. Thank you very much. Very glad to be here. Um, and as always, this is Edward Jones signing off another edition of the Mad Bad and Damage Strange Showcase. But I remind you, as always, to keep it strange. <laughs>